What's this I hear about a trip to New York? Oh, don't look so surprised. The government requested it. Everyone knows I'm going. No one knew you were going on your own. What an ugly, avaricious piece of self-advancement that is. I'd sooner be doing it with my husband by my side. <laughs> doing what? The past few months, you've barely been in a fit state psychologically to go to the hairdresser, much less represent the crown. Although I gather you've still found time to see certain other people. I think this conversation's gone as far as it can. You were the one who insisted on talking. I always said silence was preferable. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and this show has followed the fourth season of the Netflix original series, The Crown, episode by episode. We've taken you behind the scenes, spoken with many of the talented people involved and dived deep into the stories. Today we're talking about the final episode of season four, titled War. Thatcher's position as Prime Minister hangs in the balance as members of her cabinet turn against her. Princess Diana, meanwhile, is set to take on her first official solo trip overseas to New York, despite Charles's doubts. Will Thatcher be able to secure her position? Will Diana's trip be a success? Can war be avoided? Or is it the only way forward? We'll be talking in depth about scenes and events that feature in this episode. So if you haven't watched episode 10 yet, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear once again from Head of Research Annie Salzberger, as well as from Her Royal Highness herself, Olivia Coleman. I've done it for quite a long time now. And I've had a lovely time and and people I love will, will come with me. It's quite a joyful thing. We've had a great time. We'll also hear from Gillian Anderson on working with Olivia. Much hilarity ensued the minute (laughs) cut was called and sometimes very difficult to pull oneself back together (laughs) into, into Margaret Thatcher. But first, for the last time, I spoke with show creator Peter Morgan at his house in London and I asked him if he enjoys writing the final episode of a series. I much prefer the last episode to the first episode. I feel I can just go for it. Uh, I rewatched the episode the other day and I was really struck by how it is a series of very dramatic two-hander scenes and they go right the way back to about halfway. There comes a point about halfway through the episode. There are sort of four, five or six mm-hmm. scenes and they sort of come at you one after the other and each one tops up. The first one ratchets up the tension and then the others all just add a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And I'm not sure that it had been intended that way, but you do know when you come to the final episode, you can slightly take the gloves off and have a go for it. This trip that Diana takes to New York is a huge moment. I wanted to show Diana in New York being a rock star and and killing it, which is what she did. Her hugging the child with AIDS, of course, the child. That was a really big breakthrough moment. And it was the kind of emotionally heroic, I suppose, Mm. gesture that she could make because she wasn't the queen. And that's why I gave Charles those lines about, you don't think we could do that too, theatrically hug the wretched and the dispossessed. The exquisite selfishness of your motives and the, the 
calculated vulgarity of the antics, knowing full well the headlines they would get. Antics? Grandstanding, like that. You think we couldn't do that too? Theatrically hug the, the wretched and the dispossessed and cover ourselves in glory all over the front pages? I doubt it. We all know that one of the biggest things that caused the problems was the degree to which her PR work eclipsed them. And it must have been very frustrating for Princess Anne. It's known. Charles hated being eclipsed. Of course, he's the heir to the throne. And Diana just turns up and that's it, the front two or three pages. It's so horrible to her when she comes back. All she wants is a thank you and well done. But hopefully we see that in context because another one of the scenes, of course, is the scene between him and Camilla Mm. in which he sees her destroyed by Diana's popularity. Right in those three characters, not swaying to one or the other, you almost got kind of emotional weighing scales out for each one in terms of not showing too much sympathy for one and too much sympathy for the other. Getting that balance right between those three characters and making sure that no one is purely seen as a villain. I think that criticism of Charles and Camilla over the years has been so pointed that you want to you say to these imaginary characters, you know, what, what would you like to say in your defence? Everybody needs a fair hearing. And it's never quite as straightforward as it appears. Someone who looks like me has no place in a fairy tale. That's all people want. It's a fairy tale. If they knew the truth about our feelings for one another, they'd have their fairy tale. No. To be the protagonist of a fairy tale, you must first be wronged. A victim. Which if we were to become public, we would make her. In the narrative laws of fairy tales versus reality, a fairy tale always prevails. She will always defeat me in the court of public opinion. Gillian did a screening yesterday for some friends of of episodes one and two, and she hadn't seen them before, completed. And there were three generations there. There were people of grandparent age, parent age, and children there. And what was fantastic for me was that people were talking afterwards in the way that I wanted them to talk, which is that they were making sense of each other's generations. Mm. And that, for example, the first couple of seasons... You know, this show is a window to look in at the generations of our grandparents, you know, the the 50s. And then through the 60s and 70s, you get a chance to explore our parents' generation. I'm speaking as a person who's in mid-50s, mid to late 50s. And now we're entering our generation, watching the episode where Thatcher became prime minister. You know, that was when I was in adulthood. I would call that my generation. That's when I was at university, really forming my own opinions about life. And for me to have my children watch that and for them it's a foreign country to be honest they don't know who thatcher is they don't know who diana is they know who of course william is but they have no idea of his mother nor indeed her legacy and the impact on british cultural life and and that this is in some way our social history and that unfortunately part of that involves looking at their marriage but the failures of their marriage don't don't particularly interest me unless it swings round to having dramatic influence on the outcome of the line of succession or indeed of where the crown ends. And that this institution, anybody who is not at the heart of it, and there's ultimately really only one person at the heart of it, everybody else is expendable and everybody else feels the horror of that 
how inessential they all are. There's really only one person that matters. And much more important to me is that is that we're using this family as a bunch of avatars to explore the second half of the 20th century. Did you enjoy writing Thatcher? Yes, <laughs> I did. I enjoyed writing Thatcher because it's so interesting. Everything is worth looking at again with the benefit of a 20 or 30 year hindsight. You humanise her, that's what I think's great about it. I concentrated on the two or three moments where we knew she'd reached some sort of emotional distress, you know, when she was worried about her son, when she was forced to leave office. In this episode, we see this emotional, broken, fragile woman that is miles apart from the, where we first see her. Yeah, and the Queen, of course, is exactly where we first see her again. Yeah. That this revolving door of people being carried out, you know, one after another, after another, after another. Talking of revolving doors, we've got bye-bye to this wonderful cast from season three and four, and we're welcoming a whole new bunch. And is that in your mind when you're writing the last episode of this season, that this is the final time we will see this collection of actors in these roles? Yeah, I, yeah, I do think so. And I think as a consequence... I did write it a little bit like a like a dodgy libretto in that they all come out. They do come out for their little bows. <laughs> they come out to do their last little song and then a bow. And uh, yeah, and it was it was important to do and I think probably it might, it's my favorite episode of the season, I think the 10th one. It's undeniable the emotional impact of that. And I don't know whether what we're bringing to that when we watch it is the sense that we're not going to be seeing these these actors playing it anymore, but it's powerful. We'll hear more from Peter Morgan later on to look ahead to the final two seasons of The Crown. But back to this episode. Let's hear from Gillian Anderson, who plays the formidable Margaret Thatcher in this season. I had a remote chat with Gillian about Thatcher's journey across the season, and we began by discussing Thatcher's position in this final episode. I think you can see from her face in the comments that she knows what's coming. Mm. And yet I think she's just completely sidelined and cannot believe that it's happening and it feels like real treachery. She's fighting for her life at that point. I mean, this is her politics is her life. And she says as much. That's all she really has is her great love. And so it's a real, real deep betrayal. And also I think because of how her father also was betrayed when he was let go, it mirrors all of that. She has huge feelings about how her father was voted out. Mm. And so, you know, it's the first time we, we see... I mean, we saw a bit of emotion around episode four when her son yeah. went missing, but Peter's written this, this scene where she properly breaks down and you do feel the weight of everything that's come before and and everything that might be up ahead. At that point, she's scrambling. We see her trying every last, I'm not going to say trick, because there, there were people that she still felt like that she could rely on and people mm. that she believed knew what was best for the country and knew that she wasn't done yet and that if they could just just last a little bit longer than the dreams that she had would be able to prevail. And it, she's really broken. 
And and we see that, and we see her coming to the Queen on the one hand begging, but on the other hand stating what where her power lies, that she can dissolve Parliament, she, has, she doesn't need to ask permission. And then we see her leave, and when she returns, it's a, a really beautiful moment between yeah. Thatcher and the Queen, when the Queen extends this honour to her to the degree that she's speechless. The Order of Merit is not awarded by some faceless committee. It comes at the personal discretion of the Sovereign and is in recognition of exceptionally meritorious service. It is limited to just 24 recipients. No matter their background, you could be the daughter of a Duke or a greengrocer. What matters is your accomplishments. And nobody can deny that this is a very different country now to the one inherited by our first woman Prime Minister. As you will know from doing the podcast with Olivia, she is a delight and so much hilarity ensued the minute (laughs) cut was called and sometimes very difficult to pull oneself back together into into Margaret Thatcher from chatting with Olivia Colman about various things, kids, holidays, whatever the holidays. You remember those? Uh, Yes, yeah. No, but but also what's amazing about Olivia is how she is pretty much word perfect all the time and she absorbs, somehow absorbs the, the script. And so in the reverse, when it was my turn and not quite as absorbing <laughs> as, as that, but, re, you know, sometimes probably too focused and too concentrated on the little bits that are, that haven't come out quite right and et cetera, et cetera, for, for all the takes that I ended up doing to feel like I was getting it. She was unbelievably patient and would do it a million times and then we'd turn around and she'd do it in three takes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was it sad to to not say goodbye to her, but the effort and the uh, the energy I you know must have gone into to this part over this period of time? When I was done with doing Blanche, I did Blanche Dubois in Streetcar, yeah. and I mourned both times we did it. I mourned for days, weeping because, mm-hmm. especially the oh. second time. And I didn't really have that with that. <laughs> See ya! But yeah. Oh, thank God. Get this wig How off me. Ranging all the time. Um, no. Um, but I don't, I mean, I'd be delighted to jump into her shoes again. I mean, if, if there was an opportunity for that, for the right mm. in a moment. But it doesn't feel, it's not quite the same somehow. I'm, I'm not quite, sh- I, I don't know why, but it didn't feel, yes, it was a lot of effort, but even just six episodes in one season felt like in this show, yeah. felt like it was worth all the effort. And I'd do it again in a second. They asked me to come back and, I don't know, 
play. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, who could we have? Who could we have? Pop up as. Picking the brains of Head of Research, Annie Salzberger, is one of my favourite things about doing this podcast. And luckily for me, I got the chance to sit down with her one last time to discuss this episode. When we're plotting out the series, we're lucky in that we often use the Prime Minister's tenure as our bookend. And with Thatcher, she went on so long that it worked out pretty well for us. You know, we didn't have to introduce John Major yet. We've had to do that in series one. You had to introduce Anthony Eden because he came in early enough. And then series two, God, we had three. So her downfall would be the end of our series because it also works so well with Diana and Charles declaring war of a kind. The separation of their kind of ambitions as the prince and princess of Wales and what they expect of themselves Mm. in those roles. And there's pivotal points as well in terms of the fall of Thatcher. There are specific moments, be that Geoffrey Howe's Mm -hmm. resignation and it's all these building blocks really, isn't it, to all topple it over? Absolutely. And for Thatcher's downfall, you cannot underestimate the Falklands. This downfall should have happened in 83. The country had such extreme unemployment and urban deprivation and poverty levels. And her own party knew that there was this great disconnect between her understanding of her policies and how they affect people. I think she had the lowest approval ratings of a sitting prime minister by 82. So if the Falklands hadn't happened, Thatcher would have left in 83. The problem is the numbers are against you. And your inability to unite the party behind you over Europe, over the economy, over taxation. Perhaps if your methods were less confrontational. And if you'd consulted with cabinet rather than ruling by decree. Your rejection of core conservative values, of moderation, compassion, and your total disregard for the centre ground leaves you vulnerable, exposed, isolated. I shall always defend you, Margaret. Always. But as your friend, as an ally, I think I speak for the majority when I say the time might have come for some new blood. So Jeffrey Howe quits for a number of reasons, personal and political. And two weeks later, he's in the House of Commons and he delivers his resignation speech, which is really a call to arms for everybody to stand up and say, this woman is destroying our country. She's destroying our party. This is not the kind of consensus politics that we believe in. Yes, we're conservative in our economic values and our social values, but this is not a Mm. conservative values woman. So there's a leadership contest that comes out of that. She survives the first round, but without enough of a majority. So she then takes members of her cabinet into her office and asks them if they will support her. It is very clear she will have almost no support. And then she decides to leave She will write this as a backstab affair. That's what it was. And I think in her final statement to the public, she she says, there's so much more I could have done. As well as the the Thatcher narrative in, in this episode, we see Diana take on her first solo trip 
to New York. What was the purpose of this particular storyline and what it kind of reinforced as well? The Diana that you want to get to by the end of series four, as we transition into a new actress in series five, you have to get that glimpse of the Diana who we are going to come to know in the 90s as a very active woman globally who takes on causes that are often sort of forgotten by other royals and the woman who's going to become the queen of our hearts and be so mourned in 1997, who's sort of revamping what it is like to be a working royal. And New York is that moment. So New York in 1989, when she goes, it's her first official solo trip. And official is important because she's been on many solo trips, but this is her first as the Princess of Wales, wife, partner to the heir to the throne. And so she's doing what they all have to do on these overseas Mm -hmm. tours. It's kind of a mixture of like cocktail parties, you know, uh, visits to British businesses to help promote British trade and arts. And then she slips into very specific, very important visits. She goes to the Lower East Side to visit a center for women and children. Mm -hmm who find themselves facing homelessness for a variety of reasons. And she goes to the Children's Aid Ward, AIDS Ward at Harlem Hospital, which as a New Yorker is a place I can tell you, I don't think most American officials would go to. And in that moment, she does something extraordinary. It's 1989, and the stigma of AIDS is still very strong, and there are still so many conspiracy theories over how you contract HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. And the one that's continuing the most is casual touch, that it can transmit through skin, which we know is absolutely ludicrous. And by then, you know, we knew it was absolutely ludicrous, but it's it still lingered. Yeah, She's touring this facility. She's meeting parents of some of the kids. But then some of the kids don't have families. Their parents are either have passed away or for one reason or another cannot undertake their parental duties. So mm-hmm. she's meeting a six-year-old boy and she is overcome with the emotion as any mother would be to hug him. And she hugs him. And in that one moment, she proves you should not be scared to touch these children. You should not be scared to touch anybody with AIDS. This casual context is a ludicrous conspiracy theory. It's important to acknowledge that this visit wasn't her first to an AIDS ward. In in 87, she shook the hand of a man dying of AIDS at Middlesex Hospital, and then the hands of all of the staff of that ward as well. And she did so gloveless in order to disprove the theory that you could catch HIV through casual contact. But this didn't make what she did in Harlem in 89 any less important. And... Her visit brings this ward and the plight of this of these children right to the fore of the news that night throughout America. And for the first time in a long time, they've the hospital gets requests to foster the kids. So there's a direct, really hopeful, wonderful consequence of her actions. She just wanted to hug a child living a very difficult life. That maternal instinct. That's it. But what came out of it was possibly new parents for these children. And the head of this unit was really moved by Diana and is just flabbergasted by the care that Diana is taking and states very clearly to the press, this is not an airhead. This is not a woman who's just going through the motions to do the right things because she has to tick a box. She is here to love these kids, to really find out about their lives. And that is the Diana you will know for the rest of her life. 
love her. She's yeah. beautiful. She's warm. She's perfect. They don't want her there. We would love to have her here. Yeah. Yeah. The way she hugged that boy in the hospital nearly broke my heart. Prince Charles is a lucky man, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Princess Di, thank you for bringing love and vitality to the Lower East Side. Yeah. You know how to make people feel good? Yeah. That is a God-given talent. Yeah. All right? Now, there's still one very important person left to speak to, the Queen herself, Olivia Coleman. We were invited on set at Elstree Studios on a cold, rainy day back in February, and we're lucky enough to catch Olivia when she just finished filming. Now, one thing to add, I had completely lost my voice at the time, so please do excuse my croakiness. Olivia, thank you for coming to chat to us. You've You're literally welcome. just finished the day, and it's only yeah, like I know. Don't tell 10. everyone how early it is because I always crack <laughs> on about how hard it is. The long hours I finished at ten. What, what have you just finished? What have you just filmed? I've just thrown a load of earth into Mountbatten's grave. You know, lush <laughs> Thursday morning. <laughs> Happy Thursday. Yeah, <laughs> but you've not got long. How long have you got left? A week. Oh my god! I don't know what your expectations were coming into work on the show, but it was the reality. What your expectation was. I think so, yeah. I've never done a camera test before. That seems like a big Hollywood film type thing to do. Not very British telly. Yeah. And so the first thing I had to do was a camera test and that was just like, oh my God, what have I got myself into? (laughs) And it sort of stayed at that level, albeit just really lovely people. Yeah. But they've, they really support all the departments. It felt that you were part of something Mm. big and sort of glamorous and chic. Yeah. (laughs) All the way through. You know, the Queen is the constant throughout it all. And you have this wonderful opportunity in season four for almost these great double acts. Yeah. Partnerships that she has with with various people. Yeah, with various people. And as an actor, I imagine that's a wonderful thing, having different actors to play off. Yeah, totally. And it is a proper treat. So it's two years of being utterly spoilt with fantastic writing, working with amazing people. Every day you come in and, you know, we sit and go, great, I've got a scene with... With Gillian Anderson. Can we talk oh. about Gillian and... Yes, OK, what should we talk about? Because... She's amazing. Oh, my God, the Isn't voice she? and the... Spooky. Yeah. Every now and then I sat opposite her and just went... Because <laughs> the hair and the... Lips. All the movements as well and the way she... She apparently liked her left side, so that's why a lot of it is done, you know, to the left. And then she punctuates with the head move. And you can see her doing it all. Because yeah. we all, well... Anyone younger than me won't remember it, but... But they know just, what she looks like yeah. and they know what she sounds like as yeah. well. Yeah, and also people did impressions of us, you know, the, and spitting image and all spitting that image, stuff. Spitting image, yeah. But to see Gillian really... Oh, it's really oh, brilliant. It was a, a privilege to sit opposite her. That relationship between your two characters, yeah. and it was interesting, Peter, talking about how each Prime Minister has a different relationship to the Queen, you know, there's... Yeah. Wilson was the... He likens it to family yeah. members. Yeah, yeah. Which is and that's why he does that. Thatcher was sister, wasn't it? Twin. S- oh, I don't like twin. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> Twins that really don't get on, maybe. Power is nothing without authority. And at this moment, your cabinet is against you. Your party is against you. And if the polls are to be believed, if you were to call a general election today, you would not win which suggests the country is against you. Perhaps the time has come for you to try doing nothing for once. 
the difference is you have power in doing nothing. I will have nothing. I found it brilliant that the pull of the power between the two of them. Yeah. Was that- also, to encounter another very powerful woman was an unusual thing. And there's a sort of, yeah, jockeying for position a bit. What do you love about that opportunity to have a two-hander? Yes, I love the opportunity just to do one-on-one and talk and to, mm-hmm. to react to each other and feel the way. But then I equally love a room of lots of people reacting, you know, and it's a sort of dinner party or... Ibble-dibble. Ibble-dibble. <laughs> really fun. The comedy is something that I think a lot of people don't expect with The Crown, but I think it's something that is threaded throughout it as well and yeah. in the right places and particularly with with you and Tobias. Well, I can't help myself. Sometimes my face goes into something that looks a bit funny by accident. And Peter bends with that, which is an incredible skill. Yeah. So he goes, well, I think she might make this funny, so we'll work with that. I don't mean to. But that's a wonderful way of someone like Peter paying attention to you and paying attention yeah. to your portrayal of And the her. more he gets to know you and how your voice works, you can see that he starts to put that into his writing, that wow. it fits you better. It's, it's really clever. One of the wonderful things, I think, in your portrayal of her is the joy and the happiness that she gets out of the particular side of her life that involves her in countryside. Yes. And you see that in your performance. That well, she's I just, feel it too. Do you? Yeah. When we were in Scotland, I think that's the happiest I've been in the whole... Oh. Although I'm happy. I'm a happy person all the time. But, oh, God, it was amazing. Because normally at about four o'clock, you get that slump. Everyone does. You yeah. think, oh, I'm never going to get through to the eight o'clock wrap. But we were out, you know, in the heather. And, oh, God, it was really... It fills your soul and makes you so happy. It's so beautiful. But really, you know, long hours outside and you just don't feel sleepy. Yes, it's beautiful. Yeah, you feel yeah. so lucky. And then you suddenly go, why the hell do I live in the middle of a city? I should be here. <laughs> this is where I should be. That's lovely, though, because you get a sense of hard joy from that yeah. as well. Yeah, was total freedom. No one can see you. Heaven. God, I totally understand why. Well, she spent her whole life on horses. She's an incredible yeah. horsewoman. Could you ride before? No. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Is that you riding towards Anne, then, in the country? Did you properly? Was it going fast? I mean... Not me, then. What? <laughs> I can trot. I can trot, walk, canter. and sit. I can only canter if I'm allowed to scream, and if uh, and if Camilla from from the horse training thing is is riding alongside me, holding my shoulder into the saddle, then I'm That's fine. That's amazing. I had to learn to side saddle. Mm-hmm. I could leave it like that and just let people think, "Oh my God, she's amazing." I just had to sit in side saddle, and uh, the thing is, it's so you sit sideways on the yeah. horse and there's a big bit holding that leg so you can't fall backwards and there's another bit holding that leg so you can't fall forwards so you're just wedged it's easy to sit, sit yeah. and to just walk yeah. it, it would be tricky I think if you have to go any faster I could only go around in circles <laughs> <laughs> Do you, knowing how much she loved that kind of private family countryside of things when she's paraded out there as a, the public figure does she enjoy that or like that do you think or feel comfortable with it? I mean not Knowing her or being her, mm, this yeah. is totally made Absolutely, up. Yeah. <laughs> but I think she is incredibly good at her job. So that's that's the bit that allows her to then have her private bit. But it's her job. She wears bright colours so that the people at the back can see her. She's good at 
no, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it very well. Yeah. Because this is what, what, the, what I'm here to do. So I think that's what it is. It takes pride in doing it well. Yeah. Because she really does it well. She's extraordinary. Yeah. Fagan and and that whole episode the breaking at the palace. Yeah. yeah, as we said, we don't know what went on and what was said and stuff. No. Specifically, I really remember that breaking in the news Me though. Too. And there were diagrams of where he got in, and and apparently he sat on the bed and talked to her, and she just had to keep him talking until someone came in. And I really remember that. And I remember as a kid going, "That's so brave." Yeah, I mean they must have security lessons or something look if someone scary is there keep them calm yeah talk them down yeah and I didn't hear it I've heard of it second hand an amazing doctor I think who was traumatized by the war zones he'd been working in and he he went to dinner at the palace is that right did you hear that oh no yeah and he he suddenly it was all too much the the juxtaposition between where he was and now sitting next to the queen and she just called the dogs in can we have the dogs please and they fed the dogs so there was a distraction she just knew there's something she's very wise She's good with people. Yeah. She knows what to do in a, in a difficult situation. One of her massive strengths is that her, how, her compassion with her people yeah. in a way, you know, whatever situation that is. Because if you think back to when she first became queen and she went on that massive tour and she yeah. spent that whole time being and out there. Every appointment, didn't miss anything. Yeah. This is my job. You don't really do much kind of deep dive prep on things. Not unless it's really, unless I think I can't find it without yeah. that. I rely very much on gut and instinct. And, yeah. and if I don't feel like I've got that, then I'll go and do some more. And for me, the Emma with Diana as well is such a... So I think that's talk- all much harder because we don't hear the Queen much. We don't, we see her in stills, yeah. uh, photographs and things. So it's, my job's easier. But for, for Emma, much harder. Really? I think so. I think there's a lot more of... We know her head movements and have we've heard her interviewed. We've seen her packed more, so we've mm. seen what she looks like when she thinks she's free. Yeah. When you saw her for the first time, Emma as Diana, yeah. what was your reaction? Just, I can't believe somebody walked into the room that was that looked like her and is that good. The cheeks and... It's amazing. She's brilliant. Like you see, we know so much about her from pictures and from footage and stuff as well. Mm. But I really want to know about those relationships, her relationship with the Queen and that relationship with the rest of the family and with Philip. You know, when she goes up to Balmore, I believe that was Emma's first shoot day as well, which is such a lovely kind of irony in in a way that's her first day with family. And we were all standing around watching us a bit, ooh. (laughs) Because when she walks back, uh, yeah, with the stag. The stag, oh, Wayne. We're all there with an audience. Yeah. Yeah, poor cow, she did brilliantly. <laughs> <laughs> We've been lucky enough to be on set and um, when we came down to Salisbury to see you before, the work that goes into the production, for you having that, the real place, so to speak, yeah. there for you as a playground to be in and stuff, how much does that help? Helps enormously. I mean, the sets they build on the stages, you know, in the studio are incredible. Mm-hmm. You've, you've seen them. So one side, it looks like double-sided sticky tape and a bit of cardboard, <laughs> and you walk in and you're in the Britannia mm-hmm. yacht. But going into the real buildings, it does, I don't know, instil something in you, sort of stand a bit taller, and it's an enormous privilege as well to see see inside these houses. Yeah. And see some other paintings, and most of the places are open to the public, but we get to go there and it's just us. It's yeah. It's a real treat. And just the history, it's dripping with history every corner. Yeah. 
I love it. Love all that. We haven't talked about Josh as well. <gasps> love Josh. They know that you betray your wife and make no attempt to hide it. They know that thanks to you, she has psychological problems and eats or doesn't eat or whatever it is she does or doesn't do. They know that you are a spoilt, immature man, endlessly complaining, unnecessarily. Married to a spoilt, immature woman, endlessly complaining, unnecessarily. And we are all heartily sick of it. All anyone wants is for the pair of you to pull yourselves together. Stop making spectacles of yourselves. And make this marriage and your enormously privileged positions in life work. And if I want to separate... You will not separate or divorce or let the side down in any way. And if one day you expect to be king... I do. Then might I suggest you start to behave like one. You know, Charles in particular in season four, I mean... Poor old Josh spent every scene just looking, you know, like he'd been slapped in the face with a wet fish. Yeah. He's an extraordinary young actor. You enjoyed your your time with him on screen. So much. There's so much humility, which I think is the trick. Mm. I don't think he has any idea. He's so marvellous to watch. And he completely just becomes whoever he's playing. But it's never... It doesn't involve heartache. He's just Mm -hmm. there. And the second the cameras have stopped, he goes, right, who wants to play a game? I go... (laughs) Oh, you were just really heartbreaking. <laughs> just, it's, it's all absolutely there at his fingertips. Wow. He's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, we left season three, obviously, with this extraordinary scene with you and Helena. But what's really nice in this season as well is you see Elizabeth still relying on her family for yeah. help and advice. Yeah. But I love watching you two together on screen. Yeah, I love our scenes together. Yeah. We do sort of look after each other. It's hilarious pick up after each other and you know she has we believe in different things yeah we tease each other about it constantly sort of you're sitting in the wrong place you weren't sitting like that come on and sort of just get up just come now talk to each other like sisters yeah no. did you know each other well before no not at all oh wow yeah we just did completely you... fell into it yeah and literally fall into it on the first day of yeah. working together not kind of spending they just time. sort of looked at each other's eyes and went yeah great <laughs> This is going to be great. <laughs> you That's know, amazing. sometimes you just you, yeah. you know, don't you, when you're going to get on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you're about to pass the baton on as well. Yes. When did you know? At the beginning of four. Did you? Yeah. Amazing. Did Peter tell you? No, somebody told me at one of Peter's dinner parties, and I won't say who. But, um, yeah. Initials, no. Um, I said, who is it? And they just told me. But I didn't expect you to tell me. Oh, now I've got to not tell anyone. Um, but knowing how she feels, because you were there, in terms of, yeah. you know, Claire passing on to you. Yeah. How does it feel to be passing on a role to someone? Such an honour. I'm so pleased it's her. Yeah, she'll be great. I want to come back, though. And There's no way we can do a scene together, is there? Which is, can you think, think of a way? Write in, listeners, if you can think of a way. Um, in the mirror. Oh, maybe that's passing that's on it. the... Oh. In the same way with the stamp. Yeah, yeah. It could be the mirror. That's a great idea. Isn't it? Yeah. Have you spoken to Melda? No. What would your words of wisdom be to her? Oh, I don't know. It's Melda Staunton. <laughs> <laughs> do what you do, Melda. I think you'll be all right. <laughs> I mean, it must be feel quite sad to then that it's... I know that you said, like, it's two years and I know I'm done and I'm kind of off and yeah. stuff, but... I guess that final day of filming with the crew and yeah. with everybody as well. I'm, I've done it for quite a long time now. Yeah. You know, there's a reason you've got a handful of friends from from different parts of your yeah. life. It's because they're the ones you really want to stick with. Yeah. And people get really sad and teary at the end of a job. 
and I've had a lovely time and, mm. and people I love will, will come with me and that's okay and everyone yeah. if you're there on the last day and if I'm sobbing I'm going to be so embarrassed but I, I think it's quite a joyful thing we've had a great time yeah you're moving on you're going it's lovely and it's nice that it's continuing after you guys as well yeah exactly yeah. it's not the total end yeah And so here we are at the end of season four of The Crown and almost the end of the season of the podcast. Now, as you'll know, if you've followed The Crown since season one, the whole cast customarily changes each two seasons as we move through history. So before we say goodbye for now, let's take one final trip back to Peter Morgan's house because I wanted to hear about preparing for the next two seasons of The Crown. Where are you with, with right in the next two seasons? I've got all the pieces on the floor. I had a map, a roadmap for what I thought the season should be, mm-hmm. and then I wrote it, and now I'm stripping it to pieces again and starting again. Not, not all over, but... Is everyone cast in the roles before you start writing? So no. you know who's playing? No, no, no. Imelda Staunton obviously was cast. Yeah. I think as long as I've got the Queen, I know, yeah, as long as I've got her... <laughs> I feel pretty confident. And of course, we were lucky in this instance because we've got the Duke of Edinburgh and we've got Princess Margaret, we've got Princess Diana and so forth. Can you tell me a little bit about Imelda Staunton and for you why she was the right person for Um, these last two seasons? There's no interesting way of answering the question except I'd never... I think really early on I'd imagined who the three would be. Going way back even to sort of 2014... There was obviously a period of time where we hadn't found Claire Foy, but I think I knew that if the show would continue, I think I knew that Olivia would be my first choice and Imelda Staunton would be my first choice. The whole thing revolves around the Queen. The Queen is everything in this show. And who the Queen is and the way she her, her character radiates outwards, both as an actor and, and her role, is absolutely critical for the stability of the show. All I can say is... I've been sleeping very well with the idea of Imelda doing it. Even when we were chatting on Zoom the other day, she did a couple of... She broke into it a little bit, and I was like, oh, this is going to be good. It's going to be really good. I'm Edith Bowman, and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Peter Morgan, Gillian Anderson, Annie Salzberger, and Olivia Coleman. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Production from Left Bank Pictures by Georgina Brown, Florence Haddon Caven, Andy Harris. With special thanks to Annie Salzberger, Georgina Pickford, Jodie Brown, Menoshibani Clare, Daniel Jaynes, Anna Bashista, and Una O'Born. This series was created by Something Else. The executive producer is Chris Skinner. The producer is Zoe Edwards, and the assistant producer is Michael Dale with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Sharla Tahira and Ella McLeod. The sound engineer is Josh Gibbs. Music is by Hans Zimmer and Martin Phipps. Listener.